around 70 to 80% of any item is supply chain cost. An apple costs a pound to buy. Well, when you bite into that apple, you spent 20p on apple and 80p on supply chain. So you're eating supply chain more than you are apple, right? Urban Jungle brings stories from people around the globe that design and build a better world. I am Magda Flores and this is Urban Jungle. Welcome. Urban environments need your help. Be part of the solution. Check out our training courses on urban well-being. Developed in partnership with SIWEM, the UK's Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management. This is a conversation with Peter Russell, founder and CEO of UBI acronym for Out of Our Own Backyards. Ubi is in Australia, New Zealand, and guess what, now in the UK. Ubi provides easy access to sustainable and small-scale food. Hi, Pete. Hello. To picture where you are, uh, would you like to share a place that you like to visit near where you are? Yes, I'd love to. So we are based in Devon in a little town called Ashburton, uh, which is between Exeter and Plymouth. We arrived here just over a year ago and it is a beautiful part of the country. I do hear that you have an Australian accent. Tell us a little about that. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, so I was born in Australia and I uh, spent most of, well, up until around 35, um, lived in Australia, in Sydney. Uh, but then I uh, met my wife and she's here from the UK. And so we decided that we'd kind of meet in a middle ground, a place where it wasn't too far from my family and it wasn't too different to where she grew up. So we decided to go to New Zealand because it's close to Australia, but there's no deadly animals and insects in New Zealand. So that was kind of a nice, a nice middle ground. And we spent 10 years in New Zealand uh, on Waiheke Island, which is a beautiful island, just a ferry ride from Auckland. And we actually lived in an eco village on the island, about 400 acres on organic piece of land there and that's where the whole journey with Ubi began and then we've recently relocated to the UK because this is where my wife's family is originally from and we always intended to do that when the kids got to an age where we wanted to expand their horizons. On that note tell us a little about your story how did you get into food distribution in the first place? It started around 18 or so years ago I've been an entrepreneur my whole life from leaving high school, went to university to do economics and finance and lasted about a week and decided that just wasn't for me. So got into any type of entrepreneurial idea that was on my mind at the time. I started, you know, sort of fiddling with ideas and over the, the next 15 years started around about 15 different businesses while I was finding my path and across all different sectors from, you know, uh, cosmetics to to kids books to you know a bit of bit of sort of real estate development all sorts of things but then in around about 2005 or four a friend of mine was an accountant and he said that there was a wholesale patisserie in Sydney that was for sale and would I would like to go into business with him buying this patisserie and growing it with him that was my first step into the food space and it was a bit of a baptism of fire because it was a business that ran 24 hours a day, 364 days a year. Uh, it had about 25 staff and 
we had to do everything from, you know, uh, ordering through all the raw materials, producing pastries uh, and cakes for about 100 cafes around Sydney seven days a week, and, and then doing all the deliveries. We had our own vans and drivers and things like that. So it was, it was an incredibly complex business with a thousand things that could go wrong at any point in time. And I grew that business with my business partners there. And I found that that was my groove, I, that I really, I really enjoyed the food space and I was really fascinated by the whole food industry. And, and, and from there, we went into, into opening our own cafes. We branched out into doing uh, beverages, health drinks. The, the, the journey in food started around that time. So what drove you? Why vegetables? Why grow your own? I mean, what was it that actually clicked and you thought, wow, there is an opportunity here? Okay, so what, the, what it was, well, firstly, originally I grew up in a family which really valued the idea of self-sustainability. And my mum was a friend of Bill Mollison's back in the 80s with the whole permaculture movement. And so that was kind of deep in my roots around that, that sort of mindset. But then as I got into this pastry business and expanded on that, what ended up was we we were trying to grow the business and we we hit up against you know uh, infrastructure costs that we needed to raise money to be able to grow and we discovered that we could import frozen pastries from Europe rather than have to make them ourselves from scratch in Sydney. And so it just seemed like, oh, that's an easier way to do it. So we started importing frozen pastries in shipping containers from from Europe and shipping them across the ocean all the way to the other side of the world and then to selling them through all the supermarkets and we very quickly grew the business you know six seven times in size within some two years doing that model but and it was very lucrative but there was something off about it that I just didn't like I felt like I was contributing to a food system which was modern food Uh, that's completely disconnected with the community. And I was seeing that I was part of a system that was decimating small-scale local food production. Um, Then, you know, unfortunately, but in some ways, fortunately, the 2008 global financial crisis hit, and we were right in in the crosshairs of that. We got hit really hard by that because we were trading in euros and the exchange rate spikes were enormous which effectively capsized that business. And very quickly, within literally overnight, we were losing money fast. And that was a catalyst for me to think, I've got to figure out, number one, how to write things, but number two, to be part of a system that is going to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So that was a catalyst in 2008. And I ended up exiting that business and starting Ubi on the back of that experience. How did you actually manage to work out the logistics or they trying to reduce the carbon footprint? So one of the benefits of having been in the business that I had been in is I'd, I had a very deep understanding of food supply chains because we'd been involved in manufacturing, in wholesale, in distribution, in retail and across a lot of different food sort of sectors. And so I just understood the, the real world supply chain scenario and what i realized was that with most food well pretty much all food these days around 70 to 80 percent of the retail price of any item is supply chain cost so if you take an apple 
And let's just, for, for argument's sake, say an apple costs a pound to buy. Well, when you bite into that apple, you basically, what you spent your pound on is 20p on apple and 80p on supply chain cost. So you're eating supply chain more than you are apple, right? And, and that realization was, wow, there's so much that can be done in terms of if you could, if you could shave 20% off the supply chain cost, that's a big deal. If you could halve the supply chain cost, that's a huge deal for both ends and for the grower as well as the consumer. And then, you know, when you look at typical food supply chain, it goes through so many hands before it finally gets to the plate. So the idea was quite simple is how do we halve or you know cut as much as we can out of supply chain costs? And it was have a single aggregation point between the grower and the consumer and the, you know, the person who's eating it. So everything moves just two steps, one step to the aggregation point, one step to the customer, rather than from the grower to a trader, to a wholesaler, to a retailer, to a customer. So this is a huge shortening of the lead times. This is truly disrupting the supply chain. How is it perceived by uh, the supermarkets or is there a market for everyone? I think we're still seen as... A, a little thing on the edges of the market. I really don't think that they've comprehended what is possible in this space because we're not at a scale that we would be seen as a threat yet. But from a customer's experience, it's night and day. I mean, if you purchase an Apple through the Ubi network, through the Ubi system, Apple's a bit difficult because it's harvested at one time in the year and can be stored. But let's take a broccoli. If you purchase a broccoli through Ubi, that broccoli may well have been picked the day before, right, on your plate the day after it was harvested, which is a very different experience of a broccoli to one that was harvested a week before, wrapped in plastic, and, uh, you know, and then has gone through all the supply chains and waited here and then moved on to there and, and so on. So the customer experience is very different. The, the flavor, the, the nutritional value, uh, and also just the knowledge of where that food's come from and who, who grew it and how they grew it sort of adds something magical to the experience of it. But in terms of price, it is still competitive. I mean, as a mother, obviously uh, going to the supermarket, there's a certain price. So if I had my Ubi delivered to my home or to a certain point, I would still, you know, be able to purchase all the products that I am looking for in terms of vegetables and having the right things. Absolutely. Yes. Especially, you know, the way it works is that because we're able to shorten the supply chain and cut costs out of the supply chain, the savings of those costs get passed to the shopper as well as to the grower. So instead of the grower only getting paid 20p for his apple, uh, he might get paid 40p, he might get double what he would otherwise have got. But then the customer, instead of paying one pound for the apple, may be able to pay 90p for the apple. Or maybe they just pay one pound like they normally would and the grower gets 50p. So the, the really important thing here for us is that We're here to support, primarily to support the small scale independent food producers, to give them a viable channel to market where they can get paid a lot more than they would normally get paid, but the customer pays no more than they would normally pay. 
Well, that is an absolutely fantastic thing. Does that mean that I have to have gooseberry pie, which of course I <laughs> would rather have a different one uh, for people that don't know gooseberries is like um, having um, a grape. It had an attempt to being a grape, but the flavor is nothing like, it's, it's more like having a lemon. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and uh, and certainly the family love gooseberry pie for some strange uh, reason, which I do not understand. Maybe it's just a cultural difference. Yeah. Does that mean that we actually have to be re-educated in terms of the variety that we can have? I think so, yes, we do. That is one of the, you know, the differences between small scale like more local food systems is that you are constrained by the growing climate that you're in but that's not to say that you can't bring food in from other parts of the world you know we don't take a purist approach to it we just invert the normal model and that is normally if you think of it like a cake with icing Normally, most of the cake is food that's imported from all other places of the country. Most of the food you eat, it comes from, from everywhere around the world. And only the icing is what comes from your local area. We try to invert that where we say most of the food you're going to get is from your local region or at least your, your country. But then we'll still bring the icing in. You'll st we still can you know, bring food from other parts of the world but we prioritize the local. So you can still get the variety. You know, you don't want to have a life without chocolate and coffee, right? So it's it's not about saying, oh, you can't have things from other parts of the world. It's just about saying, have more things from around this area and you'll benefit from it. There is a real upside because when you do buy the food locally and from your area with a short supply chain, the quality of the food is much better. It's actually a better experience overall because you're just getting more tasty food. So you're not missing out on that sort of flavor profile uh, you usually get through buying from all over the place. Oh, that's awesome. As a small producer, I assume that we are a little vulnerable to pests and insects. And of course, what happens if I'm growing carrots and I'm providing you with the carrots? And then, of course, my whole crop can be wiped out. That does present a logistical issue with you because you may be expecting certain products and all of a sudden you haven't got them. Yeah, and that does happen. How do you deal with that? Fortunately, it doesn't happen often because small-scale food producers tend to have more of an intimate relationship with their food production and they tend to notice things and deal with things before they become major problems. But it can happen. It has happened. Firstly, our customers tend to have a more understanding or they have a more intimate connection with the food and where it's coming from. And so they have more of an appreciation for and compassion for the farmer when something goes wrong. So they're less, they have less of an attitude of I've asked for this, I should have this. It's more like, oh, okay, I'm part of a relationship here. Secondly, we do have a diverse array of producers. So we don't just buy from one producer. We buy from as many as we can, really. So in those cases, we just have to find somebody else who can replace or you know give us something that can fill the gap. It's never amounted to being a serious problem for us. And, you know, and when it does happen, we have actually had times where farmers have, have told us that news. We shared that information with the customers and the customers have, in the future, have specifically purchased from those farmers because they know they've had a hard time and they want to support them. So basically your network is becoming a system where there is a little bit more resilience 
within food production and food delivery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a far more connected system and there's visibility from one end to the other. You know, when you go to the supermarket, you'll pick up a, you know, a broccoli or whatever, and you really don't know where that food is grown. It might have a label on it. It might say some brand name or something, but you don't know who grew that food. You don't know the farmer. You don't know where it was grown. You really don't know how it was grown in a lot of ways. And so you don't really, if you don't know, you don't care, right? You can't care about something you don't know about. But when you know the story behind the food and the provenance of the food, you just care more, just inherently. And that caring brings with it a capacity to, to share the ups and the downs. Uh, and so it is more resilient. Would you like to share a story or something that has happened in your local community to make that community stronger and more vibrant? Ah, yeah. Uh, we had a, a grower in just south of Auckland in New Zealand, Jeanette, and she had a particularly rough time, not so much on, on her farm, but her family's situation was particularly rough. She was also very well known, a, a person, and the word kind of got out that she was going through a difficult time. And when we put her products up, because she did chestnuts, she provided us with chestnuts. When we put her products up on the site and we said, here's Jeanette's chestnuts, the rush for those chestnuts, everyone was buying the chestnuts because they knew they were Jeanette's chestnuts and they wanted to help Jeanette out. And we saw a real surge in people buying her chestnuts, not just because they wanted the chestnuts. So it was a real demonstration that people knew who she was, told her story on the website. People had been buying her products in the past and they had connected with her. So when they understood that she went through a rough time, they responded by supporting her through, through buying her product. So that sort of thing has happened over, over and over again. It's about facilitating a much more connected food system and a much more human food system, I think. And I think in a way, we had slightly forgotten what the sense of community really is like. I think that's something that we have actually began to experience again in the past few months with all these issues globally. So if we can actually connect, obviously the food system become more human, then that actually makes us stronger. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny, I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think we have slightly forgotten, but I don't think we've, we've lost the capacity to be, feel connected. Like we've lost the connection because the, you know, highly centralized and industrialized food system has taken that connection away. We've lost that ability to see through the supply chain to the other end. But the moment you recreate that connection, the, the memory of and the appreciation of that connection is immediate. You know, it's not like we've lost the capacity to, to care and to be, to be human. We just lost the means to, be, to care and be human because we lost that contact, that connection. Yes, particularly in the cities, perhaps that is not so visible in smaller communities, but obviously in areas that have grown, in areas where people become commuters, then in the urban areas, people have become disassociated and that link is just beginning to take place now. So in your opinion, what is a future trend in food supply? Um, well, I think it depends. It depends on how the, the whole global situation plays out. Obviously, this is a devastating last 12 months for all of us in, in so many ways. 
And one of the things that it has done is it's it's raised our awareness of some of the things, that, the ways that we conduct ourselves in the marketplace and so forth that aren't sustainable and are contributing to a longer term problem. So what we've seen in the last 12 months is people becoming far more aware of their food security and concerns around the ability to be able to access food and at the impact of the likes of a pandemic. Um, so they're more concerned about and more aware of food security. They're also people are becoming more aware of the importance of health and the importance of being able to, if they come across the virus, they're being able to have an immune system that can combat it, which comes largely down to eating good, healthy, vibrant food. There is a renewed awareness of the quality of food as, as how it affects our health and the health of our families. And so I think that this awareness has it's at a high at the moment. We've got a heightened awareness in society in general at the moment. Whether that awareness is going to abate and drop again as things go back to unquote normal, I don't know. It's hard to know. But I think there will be a legacy mindset that comes out of this time where people recognise to not take for granted their food and to realise that their participation in, in a food system is what helps to create more sustainable foods and more sustainable food systems. So if you want to see a better food system in the future and you want to see food be, be a more fair system, a more nutritious system, a more ecological system, the most important thing you can do is participate in that system. And how have you actually found doing business in the last few months? It's actually been a delight. I'm very lucky because I work with farmers and farmers are very practical, very down to earth. They're typically not the sorts of people that sit on a screen all day and absorb the media and things like that. They're typically out in their fields and they have tend to have a, a very balanced view on reality. So I have a wonderful time having conversations with farmers and food producers, you know, artisans. The great thing is I'm able to come to that conversation and to that relationship with a solution to their problem because I'm able to find, show them ways that they can get a channel to market that is far more viable for them and connects them with their customers in a way that they not only does the customer get to know who their grower is, the grower gets to know who their customers are and they get to have that experience of, of knowing where their food's going and how it's being appreciated. I feel very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Also that you have a very positive attitude, isn't it? So your attitude of let's do stuff, let's keep active, it's a mindset sure. that actually has allowed you to be in business. And I think we all could take a leaf from your book and actually think, yes, of course, of course, we have to continue doing things. We have to be out there safely, of course, by all means, within the guidelines of each region, but that things don't stop. We cannot stop our economy. We cannot stop enjoying the doing of what we actually really, really like to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's the old silver lining of every cloud, right? This time, if you listen to what's going on in the general media and so on, it can seem like a very depressing time, especially because of the impact that it seems to have an asymmetric impact. The small scale independent businesses tend to be have, copying the brunt of this more than the big you know, Amazons and, and Googles and things like that. So the and that's where we are. We're in that mix of small businesses that are taking the bulk of the hit. But at the same time, it is actually an opportunity 
It's an opportunity for small businesses to really stand up and really figure out, okay, we're going to have to reinvent ourselves. But if we can reinvent ourselves, the market wants us more than ever. You know, we're the underdog right now, right? We're the underdog right now and everyone can see it. We're really, really copying it and people care. Most people really care but they just need the means to be able to show that they care. They need the ability to be able to act on that. And that's what we're working on is giving the chance for everyday people to say, I can help. It's as simple as I just shop there instead of here and I can be part of that solution. So, and that, that is exciting. I think there is a real opportunity at the moment that wasn't there a year ago. So is that your ultimate goal? Yeah. I mean, our ultimate goal is to be able to make this model available everywhere and anywhere. It's astounding when you think of it. There are over 500 million small-scale growers on this planet. 500, that's half a billion farms. I mean, that's an incredible number of farms. And most of them are effectively impoverished because of the way that they've been disenfranchised from the, the food distribution systems. But all of those, all 500 million of those have the ability to be able to have a much more direct and much more fair and viable channel to market. And as smartphones and the technology that is rapidly becoming ubiquitous becomes more available to people in this space, then this method of getting their food to market becomes available too. And I absolutely see that this is a model that it's still very infant in its application around the world. But it beats the long food, industrial, centralized corporate supply chain hands down when it comes to just delivering better food at better prices. It's just a matter of scaling it out. I understand what you're saying, because what we had in Mexico was the vanilla pod. And the fly that actually helped develop the vanilla pod was originally Mexican. But then it was, of course, industrialized in various different parts of the world, particularly Madagascar. And then, of course, you now see the traditional way that they continue to produce the vanilla port, and it is not at an industrialized level. It's um, done at a very, very singular level, artisanal. And, of course, the people doing that, you know, they earn next to nothing, which it shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. But I do believe the tide is turning. You know, we've worked hard for the last 10 years. We started trading with Ubi in 2010. And for those first 10 years, it was a hard grind. Like we never had enough money. We never had more than two months worth of payroll to cover. It was always right on the edge for 10 years, never feeling like we were going to be able to you know, last another three months. But we somehow just kept the thing going. And now it's in the last year where the, you know, we've had the wind at our back where what we've accumulated over those first 10 years in terms of experience and systems and tools and relationships, very respectful, long-standing relationships, that's now paying off. And we now have a model and a system that's tried and tested and it is scaling very quickly. Like we, we started here in the UK at the end of May last year. So just nine months ago is when we started in the UK. It took us nine years to really get up and establish three hubs, two in New Zealand and one in Australia. In the last nine months, we've set up nine hubs here in the UK. We're in a completely different time where we're able to scale much faster. And we are on track to 
adding a new hub every month. So now we have hubs all the way from the Scottish Highlands down to Cornwall and Kent. We're covering the whole country with hubs. Uh, and it's already within nine months, already nine hubs dotted around the country. Within 20 months, there should be 20 hubs. Those hubs are now able to start connecting and trading between each other and supporting each other. So each hub is like a node in a network. And then those nodes can start trading between each other so that each node, each hub now has a wider variety of food produced still within the general region. So it's very exciting. The network effect is starting to have an effect. And we're starting to see, you know, the whole flywheel effect of, you know, the more hubs we have, the more customers we have, the more customers we have, the more suppliers we have, the more suppliers we have, the more customers you get and the more hubs you get. And it starts to build like that. So we're, we're in a very exciting time. Peter Russell from Ubi, if we wanted to get hold of you or if we wanted to find out more about Ubi, where can we find out? Ubi.org. And that will take you to a website where you can find the hubs that are around the world. Uh, but you can just find me on LinkedIn. Look up Pete Russell on LinkedIn or look for Ubi, which is spelled with four O's B-Y on LinkedIn. This is Urban Jungle with your host, Magda Flores. Thanks for joining. And if there is a topic or people you would like to hear from, all you have to do is drop me a line. My email address is urbanwsolutions at gmail.com. Urban environments need your help. Be part of the solution. Check out our training courses on urban well-being. Developed in partnership with SIWEM, the UK's Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management.